As we begin this Christmas series about rediscovering the wonder of Christmas, the Christmas season is definitely already here. We're seeing the, direction, uh, the decorations that are already up on houses and in stores. We're seeing the made-for-TV movies being broadcast, right? Anybody a fan of those films, the made-for-TV Christmas films? We've got a few here. For those of you who know me, you know that I love movies. And I have a special place in my heart for genre films, you know, films that are in a particular genre, they follow a certain formula, and certainly one of the more new and interesting of the film genres is that of the Christmas made-for-TV movie. And so, every year I watch one or two of these films, I'll admit it, all right, whatever. I watch a couple of them. And so this year, we watched one already that really epitomized the genre. So Steph, my wife, my mom, and I, we watched this movie called A Royal Corgi Christmas. Come on, that, that one really ticks the boxes, right? <laughs> so it was great, we laughed, but hey, it was a very enjoyable and pleasant way to spend a couple of hours. In addition to the movies, we've also got the Christmas music on the airwaves, and I think that some of the greatest music ever written is Christmas music. Today we're gonna look at a series of poetic verses in the New Testament that can be considered the first ever Christmas song. It's the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it's in chapter one of the book of Luke. If you'd like to turn there or pull it up on your device, we'll also, as always, have it on the screen for you. And if you're pulling it up on a device, I'll be reading from the New King James today, just so you know. The song is sometimes called the Magnificat, which is the Latin title, and it's been set to music by many composers over the centuries, from Johann Sebastian Bach centuries ago, to the present day, John Rutter, a UK composer who set it to music, and it's really good, the Bach and the Rudder versions of the Magnificat. It's in Latin, but they're very enjoyable to listen to. I recommend them. You can find them on YouTube. So before we dive into the text today, I want to do a couple of things. First, I want to tell you the story that leads up to this song, and then after that, I want to talk a little bit about the form and the structure that the song takes so that we can have a full understanding of it whenever we read it. Okay, so first, here's the story leading up to the Song of Mary. Mary, a Hebrew maiden, probably very young, probably a teenager, from an out-of-the-way village called Nazareth, has been visited by the angel Gabriel, whom God sent to tell her that she was going to give birth to the Jewish Messiah. So Gabriel shares this news with Mary, and she faithfully accepts this responsibility and this role that she's been given. Gabriel also tells Mary that her older relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age, and she'll be giving birth, and so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and of course, Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And whenever Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house and enters the house, Elizabeth has this spiritual insight that comes from the Holy Spirit of God that Mary is going to be the mother of the Jewish Messiah, and she calls Mary blessed among women, for this role that she has to play in God's story. And then after Mary is greeted by Elizabeth, Mary gives us the song that'll be our main text today. But before we read together, as I said, I wanna talk a little bit about the form and the structure that the song takes. Scholars point out that although this song is written in Koine Greek, the Greek of the common people of this time, its form is very much after the form of Hebrew poetry. And so I want to tell you a little bit about Hebrew poetry and explore the unique power of Hebrew poetic technique. So again, we can have a full understanding of these verses we're about to look at. In English poetry, 
uh, we often hear sound patterns. That's really what distinguishes English poetry from non-poetic writing, prose. It's the sound pattern, so meter, where we have a pattern of unemphasized and emphasized syllables. And that's just kind of you know, a rhythm. It gives a musical rhythm to the words. There are also sound similarities, like rhyme, when the ends of words sound similar, and also alliteration, when the beginnings of words sound similar. Such sound patterns are a hallmark of poetry in other modern languages as well, such as Spanish. And even in the ancient world, in the poetry of Rome and ancient Greece, sound patterns were really what distinguished poetry from prose. In the classical languages of Latin and Greek, there was an alteration of long and short syllables. They had syllables that had different lengths, whereas we have syllables that have different emphases. Hebrew poetry, on the other hand, is not based primarily in sound patterns, but in idea patterns. That is, Hebrew poetry is written such that the interplay of ideas is what is primarily important. There are a number of ways that ideas may interact in Hebrew poetry. An idea may be stated and then restated in different words or from a different vantage point. An idea may be stated and then stated and elaborated upon. Or an idea may be stated and then a contrasting idea will be given as well. C.S. Lewis noting this interplay of ideas in the Psalms in particular, wrote in his book Reflections on the Psalms that this chief formal characteristic of Hebrew verse, the interplay of ideas I'm talking about, he pointed out that it can be translated into any language. He, he gave us this great insight, it's a very astute observation, that God inspired poetry that he knew was going to be translated into all the world's languages and go out for all people, and so the poetry is not rooted in sound patterns, which would change from language to language as the poems are translated, but it's, it's rooted in idea patterns such that the Psalms and other Hebrew poetry and this song that we're gonna read today can be translated to other languages and the unique power of the poetry can be heard regardless of the language that we speak. And so here's what that Hebrew poetry does beyond being able to be translated into other languages. It does something to us as readers and hearers. Through its careful deployment of ideational parallels and elaborations and contrasts, it invites us to slow down. It invites us to ponder, to delve deeply into the meanings at play and be changed by them. So let's take a moment and imagine Mary's mental and emotional state at this moment in her life, whenever she uttered these verses. She's gonna give birth to the Messiah. If you study the passage in Luke that we're dealing with and also the passage in Matthew in which the angel comes to Joseph, the father of Mary, who is Mary's fiance, you come to the conclusion that at this point in Mary's life, Joseph almost certainly did not know yet about her pregnancy. And so that's some difficulty that she's got in her future. Her head was no doubt filled with a swirl of apprehensions and thoughts. And her heart was no doubt filled with a variety of emotions. And in this pivotal time in her life, she engages with this revelation of the coming incarnation of God in verse. She praises God for what he's doing in her and for her and in the world and for the world. And she does it in the poetic style of her people. And through these verses, as we'll see in just a moment, she considers what it means specifically that the Messiah is coming through her, a humble maiden from a small town. And now, 
through this passage, God invites us today, in this Christmas season, to slow down and to ponder and to consider the praise of Mary and to be changed by it ourselves. So let's dive into the passage. Verse 46 of Luke chapter one, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. So note here the parallelism. The idea of praise to God is reiterated and developed. She praises God in both of the verses and in the second verse, the Lord is shown to be her God and her savior. And then as we continue reading the song, we read the specific reasons for Mary's praise. So Mary is praising God, and now we're going to read why she's praising him. Verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Though she is lowly in her own eyes, she will have an eternal fame because God is using her in her story. So once again, an interesting contrast of ideas there. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We have a picture in this verse of God's personal nature. He's working specifically for an individual person, doing great things for that individual person. Of course, he'll do great things for any of us if we'll let him. And holy is his name. The Bible uses the term holy to refer to God's otherness, his extreme transcendence. And so here in this verse, we have this picture of what theologians call God's transcendence and his eminence, his greatness and yet his closeness to us as individuals. Verse 50, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. It's not only Mary we see in this verse who can experience God's mercy in her life. It's anyone who will come to him with proper reverence. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm, then how has he shown that strength? He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Here there's the introduction of a new theme and that is God working reversals in the world. Verse 52, he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in his remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. So notice that this song can be broken into three sections. In the first, Mary praises God for being a part of her life and choosing her to be a part of his grander story. She notes also in this section that anyone can experience God's mercy in their lives, an important point. In the second section of the psalm, God is praised for the reversals that he brings into the world. God is working in the world to transform it from an evil place into a good place. A place not where the prideful and the greedy are exalted, but where the lowly and the humble are exalted. In the third section, God is praised for fulfilling his promise to Israel, the promise of a coming Messiah. So if we wanted to sum it all up, we could say it this way. Mary sees the Messiah coming into the world through her, as an opportunity to praise God for being a part of her life, for reversing the evil nature of the world, and for fulfilling, for fulfilling his promises to his people. So today we're gonna to take an application from each of these three sections of the psalm. The first application will be recognize that you have a place in God's story. Doesn't matter who you are, what background you come from, 
you have a place in God's story. You were made for a place in God's story. Second, be a part of God's good reversals. God is working reversals in the world and he's inviting us to be a part of those reversals. And third, look forward to fulfilled promises. God makes promises in the scriptures and he fulfills them. And we get to look forward to one fulfilled promise in particular and that's the promise of a new and better world. So first point, you have a place in God's story and it's important that we all recognize that. Mary praises God because he uses her. She is in the eyes of the world, nothing special, right? She doesn't have a sterling pedigree. She doesn't come from a wealthy or prestigious family. She's not a princess. She's not a daughter of the high priest in Jerusalem. And these aren't just little facts to observe. When you think about God coming into the world, who do you think he might choose for his mother? I don't think that he would choose someone like Mary because I've got kind of the world's thought processes. But he chooses to come into the world not through some person of great prestige, but from a humble, regular person from a small town. And he picks her to take this incredible role in his story of salvation. And this is a reminder that God can and will use anyone in his story, no matter their status, no matter their educational background, no matter their family history. All of us are created especially by God with certain attributes and circumstances that no one else has. And so those attributes and circumstances that each of us have make us uniquely suited to serve God and serve others in a way no one else can. We simply have to recognize this fact. Then once we recognize that we have a place in God's story, we have to adopt the attitude of Mary that we see in this passage. That is, we accept that role, we accept the responsibility of that role faithfully. We praise God that he would choose us for a place in his story, and we commit ourselves to knowing God, to communing with him through spiritual practices so that we can be empowered by him to take on the roles that he would give us. I've been reading a book lately that captures this theme quite well. It's called A Grander Story, An Invitation to Christian Professors. It's by Rick Hove and Heather Holloman. And in this book, it calls people like me who teach in higher education um, to view themselves as a part of God's larger story that he is working in the world through universities, which largely do shape the culture of the world. And so I'm being very challenged and encouraged by this book, and to me, by the way, that's kind of the hallmark of a good spiritual book. Does it both challenge and encourage at the same time? And this book is certainly doing that. It's challenging me and encouraging me. And you know, the theme of the book applies to all people regardless of vocation. You don't have to be working at a college or a teacher in order to catch the theme of the book. And the authors of the book write this. I'm gonna give you a quote that I found particularly uh, moving and powerful for me. Quote, when we combine the two truths that one, our lives are part of God's grander story, and two, God has created and gifted each of us to be part of this thrilling plan, then our vocations find new meaning, end quote. Now, I would expand this quote to go beyond vocations, and I would say our lives find new meaning when we recognize that we are part of God's grander story and we've been created so that we can serve a unique role in that thrilling plan. All too often in our lives, we get caught up in just getting up and like Paul McCartney saying, we've got, this, is, this, this service has people that are gonna know this reference, okay? <laughs> the next service may not know this one, but Paul McCartney's saying, it's just another day. Remember that? It's just another day. This is the mindset 
that all too often we're tempted to have. It's just another day. But we should have a different mindset. When we recognize we have a place in God's story, we can get up each day and think, today is a day that God's story is moving forward, and I have the privilege and the responsibility to be a part of that story. Each day can be an adventure of discovering how we can be used for good. And importantly, we will have endurance to keep fighting the good fight whenever we recognize we've got a unique role that no one else can play. So I want to dwell on that idea for a second, the idea that we will have extra endurance whenever we recognize our unique role. In our lives, we often feel struck down. We feel drained. We try to do good in our lives with our families, in our work, at school. And we're trying to do our best, and yet we feel like we're giving and we're giving, and we're not sure if it's doing any good, or we're not sure what the impact is of what we're doing, and so we start to feel like maybe we should just give up and float along and stop trying. So some of us in this room are feeling exactly what I'm describing today. There's no question. Some of us are are in that place, and, and if you're not, you will be eventually. And if that's you, let me encourage you to first and foremost lean into spiritual practices, to lean into reading and meditation and prayer so that God's presence can be more felt in your life and can empower you to endure and keep working and keep doing good. But also remember and use the thought that you have a place in God's plan as a spur, as an impetus to keep working and keep doing good. This reminds me of a movie, one of my favorites. And it's a movie that came out in the summer of 2008 and it was a surprise hit. People knew it would be popular, but it, was, it captured the popular imagi- imagination, the zeitgeist, if you will, in a way that few movies ever have. And it became one of the most successful films of all time. A fact which is pretty surprising, given that it's about a man who dresses like a bat and fights a clown. I'm referring, in case you haven't picked up yet, to the Batman film, The Dark Knight. I love this movie, as many other people do. And, you know, there's lots of great fights and all the stuff that we like in a comic book movie, but there's one scene in the film that I find particularly resonant. And, you know, as I've watched the movie over the years, this scene has become my favorite scene in the movie. It's a quiet scene between Batman, Bruce, I call him Bruce, you know, and his butler, his aide in crime fighting, his mentor, Alfred. So Batman is is at one of these places, Bruce is at one of these places in his life where he's struck down, he's not sure he should keep fighting this good fight. He wants to throw in the towel, throw in the cape in this case, right? And he wants to kind of give up, and he approaches Alfred in this quiet little scene, and he says, what would you have me do? And Alfred, I'm gonna spare you my Michael Caine impression here, okay? Um, But Alfred says, endure, endure. And then I'll, I'll paraphrase what he says after that. He says, only you can do what's needed to be done. Only, you have a special and unique role and ability, and so you need to endure and do that good. No one else can do it. You see why I love that scene so much? Because that's true of all of us if we believe the Bible. There are things in the world, there is good that only you can do. And so if you're in one of those places where you're feeling drained, Remember that God uses everybody. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your past. You can have a place in God's plan if you will come to him. And so if you feel like you can barely go on, remember there's a good only you can do in the world and that God has a plan for you and endure. So let's sum up here point one real quick. You have a place in God's story. 
recognize that fact, praise God for it, let that fact make every day an adventure of doing good, and use the realization that you have a place in God's story to endure through the difficulties of life and keep doing the good only you can do. Point two, be a part of God's good reversals. God sings of, res- of reversals, uh, Mary sings of reversals that God brings to the world. And through these reversals, the lowly, like her, are given a place of prominence. Theologians point out that one of the major themes of scripture is God's reversals that he's working in the world. This is true in the Old Testament where prophets often wrote of reversals, and it's true throughout the New Testament. We see it here in the Song of Mary, we see it in Jesus' teachings very explicitly and poetically, and we also see it in Jesus' followers and in their writings in the rest of the New Testament. And and the basic theme can be summed up like this, God is working to change the world from one in which power and pride and greed are ascendant to one in which self-giving love is ascendant. And you know, it's important and encouraging to recognize the fact that God's at work in the world working these types of reversals. But we need to move beyond recognition here and we need to be a part of these reversals. We do that in a couple of ways. First, through letting God reverse our own hearts in the ways they need to be reversed and then by getting active in the world and working to help exalt those who are suffering and lowly. So first, let's talk about how we can let God work in our own hearts. We are all, all of us, tempted to be selfish and prideful and greedy. Now, we may be selfish and prideful and greedy in our own unique ways, but these are perennial and universal temptations that we're all gonna face. But God is calling us to a different type of life than that, right? He's calling us to a life in which we love the people around us and are giving of ourselves, and we are lowly. And he will work in those lives to lift up those who choose to be humble. I taught in our Sunday school class last week that the true primordial gift of Christmas is the gift of God giving himself to humanity through the incarnation. And it doesn't just stop with the incarnation. God gives himself through a life of sacrifice. He did not live a luxurious, pampered life when he was on earth. He lived a life traveling around, helping people, helping the lowly, bringing these reversals into play in the world and teaching these reversals. And then he gave himself for us on the cross. He died for us to save us from our sins. After that, he was resurrected and he sent the Holy Spirit, again, God giving himself to us to inhabit our lives, to be within us. This theme throughout the Bible, not only of reversals, but of God giving himself to us. And of course, we're called to emulate God, to be like God. And that means that we are to be people who give of ourselves to God and to the people around us. One of the great pieces of Christmas literature is the short story, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry. Uh, You may have read this story in high school or you may have seen one of the film adaptations of it. It's a story that in its conclusion movingly highlights the difference between the world that exists and the world that God is making. That is to say, it highlights the difference between what the world views as wisdom, the wisdom of possessions and holding things for yourself and selfishness, and the wisdom of God, which is feeling the love of God and letting it flow through us to love the people around us. So I want to read that concluding passage, but before I do, let me remind you of the story. Maybe you've never heard the story before. It's a very simple one, and I can tell it very, very briefly. So in the story, you've got a newlywed couple. This is set around the turn of the last century, so 
around 1900, shortly thereafter, a newlywed couple, they're poor, they live in a small apartment in a city, and the wife is sitting in the apartment alone, and she's counting their money, and she's only got a little more than a dollar, less than a couple of bucks, but she wants to buy a Christmas present for her husband. And her husband has this beautiful watch that's been passed down through generations, family heirloom, and she wants to buy him a watch chain. But with only her dollar and 87 cents or whatever it is, she can't afford that watch chain. So she's pondering how she could get him a nice gift. And she decides that what she'll do is she'll give up her pride and joy, which is her long and flowing hair. She's got hair down to her waist, she loves her hair, she's complimented on her hair, but she knows that she can get it cut off and she can sell it, and then she'll have the funds to buy this watch chain. So she goes out, she has her hair cut off, and she goes and sells it and purchases the watch chain. This is on Christmas Eve, by the way. So Christmas Eve, the husband comes home, and he sees the wife with her cut hair, and he's kind of got this blank response to it, like, what's going on here? And of course, the wife immediately is upset, like, oh no, did I do something wrong? And she, she's worried about this, and so she gives him the gift, the watch chain. She said, I wanted to cut it off to make you happy. I wanted you to have this watch chain for that, the watch that you love, that is his pride and joy, is his favorite possession. And so when he realizes that, he kind of collapses into a seat and he's like, you know, I sold my watch so that I could buy you these combs that you've been seeing at a department store to hold up your hair and make it look good. And so they gave up the treasures of their house in sacrifice for each other and they ended up with useless gifts. And so the story ends with the passage I'm about to read to you. And you know, O. Henry, whenever you read his life story, he was not exactly the paragon of Christian virtue, but at the end of this story, I think he has one of the most startling Christian insights I've ever seen in extra-biblical literature. So the beginning of this quotation is about the Magi's gifts, that is, the, the wise men's gifts in the New Testament. And here's what he writes, being wise, the Magi's gifts were no doubt wise ones. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all those who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest, everywhere they are wisest, they are the magi. This attitude of giving love is the one that we're called to. This is the economy of God. We receive so that we can give, and it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know, we're also called to be a part of God's reversals, not only through allowing this reversal in our hearts and letting God work on us so that we can be more selfless and more loving. We're also called to be a part of the reversals happening at large in our communities. Recently, an agnostic historian named Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man actor, Okay, so there's a Spider-Man actor named Tom Holland. There's also an agnostic historian from the UK called Tom Holland. Both cool guys. I love them both. We're talking about a different Tom Holland. Okay, so the agnostic historian Tom Holland has been for years writing books, popular level books, about the ancient world. And he noticed something. There was an historical enigma that struck him as he was evaluating the ancient world and comparing it to the world which we inhabit, the modern world. And here was this mystery. The ancient world, he notes, was incredibly calloused. Their moral sensibilities were nothing like ours. 
their moral ethos, the character of the ancient times, might best be summed up as might makes right. If you have power and riches, that makes you good. If you have the power to do things, you can do those things. And because of that central ethos, the world economy was built on slavery. Whenever generals slaughtered millions of people, men, women, women, and children, they didn't try and cover it up. They used it for political advantage, and the people at home celebrated them for their atrocities abroad. Sexual exploitation was rampant, and not only put up with, but celebrated. And Holland looked at that world, and he said, what could have possibly happened to change what I just described and make the world that we currently live in, where at the very least, although we don't serve the least of these, as Jesus called them, calls them, the way that we should, we at least recognize that we should be helping people, not slaughtering people, not sexually exploiting people, and helping those who need help. What changed so dramatically? What happened in history to create this alteration in the moral sensibilities of humanity? And here's what this historian came to the conclusion of. He said, Jesus Christ and his followers made this change. If you study history, that's where the change happened. And in particular, the change happened on the cross. Because you had a group of people who were willing to give their lives saying God became a man who taught us to love one another and he died a slave's death of torture for us. And that's the character of God. And that's the base nature of reality, self-giving love. And the world changed as a result. Now, it's not perfect, but these reversals that Mary was singing about are happening, and they're happening because of Jesus Christ, and even non-believing historians can look and they can see that pattern. These reversals are moving forward in the world, and we're all called to be a part of those reversals in the sense that we need to be serving people. There are people who don't know God. We can take that news to them. There are people who are hungry. We can take food to them. There are people who need an encouragement we can take that to them. People who need a listening ear, we can take that. We need to be aware of these things. It's the Christmas season. Many opportunities to give financially to help others. There are opportunities abounding in our lives to be taking those who are lowly and help them and to help the people who are suffering. And these are the reversals that God is doing in the world and that he's calling us to. Do you see someone in your life who's vulnerable, someone in your family or someone at work? Is there a way that you could help them? This is the attitude and the mindset that we should have as we look at the people around us. So, let's sum up these first two points before we dive into the third and final point today. First of all, we have a place in God's story. God has created us not on accident. He'll use a lowly maiden from Nazareth to bring about his redemption, to play a part in bringing about that redemption. And not only that, God is working in the world to reverse individual hearts and then to reverse the evil nature of the world and we're called to let him reverse us in the ways that we need to be changed and to be part of the work of doing good in the people in the world. And finally, our third point, we can look forward to fulfilled promises. Mary praised God because he fulfills his promise. In this case, he praises her because she fulfilled the promise to Abraham and his offspring that a Messiah was coming. And through Christ, we have another promise. The promise that a better world will one day be here. That this reversal that God is bringing in the world will one day come to its full fruition, its full realization, and that anyone can be a part of it. 
the world is full of bad news. This is one of the most obvious statements that you can make. The world is full of bad news. This bad news can be inundating and overwhelming. So let's take this Christmas season as one in which we can meditate in the fact that Christ came into the world, this world of bad news, to save it and to bring his good news in the world to overwhelm the bad news. If we can make that our meditation, we can escape much of the anxiety and pessimism that so easily afflicts all of us. You know, it it occurs to me that there may be people here today who've never started a relationship with God before. Maybe people here, people watching at home. You may be here and you may think to yourself, you know, I'm not sure that I do have a place in God's story. I'm not sure I'm embracing a place in God's story. And you want that. And you want an assurance of a place in the world to come that's promised in the Bible. Well, let me tell you, here or at home, you can't have that today. The Bible teaches that we all, because of free will, have destructive inclinations. We engage in harmful behaviors. And of course, we all know that. We've all done that. But the Bible gives us this great news that God became a man called Christ so that he could face the powers of sin and darkness and ultimately death in the world. He could face them, he could cast out demons, he could heal the sick, he could face all these destructions that are happening as a result of sin in the world. And then he could go and he could face the ultimate destruction, which is death. And it wasn't just any death, it was one of the worst deaths, if not the worst death ever conceived of by mankind, the death of a Roman cross a bloody and brutal and agonizing death, and he did it for us. He showed his solidarity with human suffering. He showed he wasn't above it. He made himself lowly, and he died for us so that he could defeat the power of death and sin. After dying this brutal death, Jesus rose from the dead, promising life to all who would come to him. He made himself lowly and now he is exalted and inviting everyone to come to him. So if you've never come to him before and you would like to, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. So let's everyone bow bow their heads just a moment as we wrap up. I'm about to say a prayer and like I said, if you want to decide to receive God into your life today, receive Christ, just pray along with me. It's not the specific words that you say that are important, it's the heart that you bring to God. So if you'd like to start that relationship with God and have a part of his story and assurance in the world to come, would you pray with me? Something like this, silently, wherever you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising from the grave to give new life. I turn from the destructive behaviors in my life and I ask you to come into my life to cleanse me and make me the person I was made to be. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer here or in person, would you let someone know? If you're online, you can get in touch with us through socials or through email. If you're here in person, we've got our staff down here. You can talk to them. You can talk to me. We don't want to put you on the spot or make you uncomfortable in any way, embarrass you. We just want to encourage you and help you out as you start this journey of walking with God. And so for all of this this morning, we're starting this series about embracing the wonder of Christmas. And today we've been looking at the wonder of this song of Mary, slowly maiden thought, why me? And who sang a song in the poetic forms of her people, talking about how God uses someone like her and is making this reversal in the world and is fulfilling his promises. 
And so if we can awaken ourselves to the wonder of those realities, if we can think about that, meditate in those things and live them out, this can be the Christmas season, not only of celebration, but of transformation for all of us.